Welcome to Make Things That Matter, the podcast where we explore impactful products and the cultures that create them. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and if I'm doing my job well, each episode of this show will help you to do meaningful work, make things that make things better, and have a great experience doing it. My partner in this conversation is Matt Cressy, the founding director of the MIT Integrated Design and Management IDM program, who is an expert in innovation, leadership, and product development. As an entrepreneur and founder of Design Turn, he's engineered, designed, invented, and manufactured products for startups, Fortune 500 companies, and everything in between. And since 1999, he's taught courses at MIT, Harvard, and the Rhode Island School of Design, RISD. Most recently, Matt is also on the founding team of the New England Innovation Academy, which is the first middle and high school in the country that prepares students to shape the world through human-centered design. So it is an entirely new lens on middle and high school education in the United States. Now, this conversation is incredibly heartfelt, and I found it to be a really meaningful exploration about art and design and much of the inner drives that fuel all of our creative work, regardless of the medium that we work in. It's a hard one to summarize, but I know it's worth your time. Also, I want to apologize for the lower audio quality that's in the last five minutes of the conversation. Unfortunately, we had a pretty significant technical issue and had to switch to our backup system. So the quality was a little lower than the rest of the conversation, but nonetheless, we brought it home. So with all of that, please enjoy this beautiful conversation with the one and only Matt Cressy. Matt, officially, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Doing great, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm so excited for this conversation. And I know that we are going to have an interesting exploration together just based on the few conversations we've already had. I, I'm so, I've been so looking forward to this. So I'm thrilled we're getting to do this finally. Well, thank you. Me too. So I thought a fun place to start might be a story I'd love you to tell about a cycling race you happened to win after taking a few years off from competing. And, and it seemed like it was a really interesting learning experience for you. So I was hoping you could tell me that story and, and what did you take from that? Yes, I believe you're talking about my Wells Avenue training race experience. Yeah, I'd stopped, you know, I'd stopped racing. Uh, I was very, very serious racer. Well, for me, I was serious uh, back in my 20s. You know, I mean, if you're a serious racer, you're riding, you know, 20 hours a week. And I was never able to do that. Maybe I was an eight to 10 hour a week rider. And I think that used to frustrate a lot of my competitors. But in any case, my first daughter was born and I had just bought a beat up old house um, on a beautiful little piece of land on an island, you know, and... Um, and I w realized I got to build a house. I got to make this nest for my family. And, um, and I want to spend time with my new little girl. So I ended up stopping riding altogether. You know, fast forward a few years, I'm a little bit overweight. I'm, uh, you know, feeling kind of crummy about that and, you know, just not fit anymore. So I start riding slowly just for recreationally. And it ends up some folks I'm working with. Uh, are riding every day. A client I have, the U.S. Army, they're, they're a bunch of physiologists I was working with. They're riding every day at lunch. And they said, hey, why don't you mm. join us? So I'd go out riding with them super slow, like ridiculously slow. But it was, you know, for me, it was like, okay, this is sort of a substitute for golf, you know, doing business, talking, you know, figuring out, you know, stuff. So it was, it was worth it. But eventually I did come back to cycling after six years. And, um, there were some physiological changes in me that were significant from that type of training I was doing, which we call long, slow distance. Um, mm -hmm. And that, I think, allowed my cardiovascular system and all the infrastructure necessary to deliver oxygen to your muscles to kind of be established for a change. Mm. Uh, and and it, was a lot, it was me being patient with my body 
and its rate of adaptation, which I think a lot of athletes are not patient and they overdo it. And the body as a result adapts actually slower. Anyway, that's the physio physiological part. But the mental part was that I'd missed the sport and I didn't realize it. Mm. And I lined up for this training race. I'm looking around and I'm seeing all these guys I hadn't seen in six years. And I just realized at that moment how much I love this sport and I love bicycles. And thank God that there's other people in the world like me, even though I were here to beat each other. Right. <laughs> I realized, my God, there's this weird thing. I love them. I never knew I loved them. I did. I love them. Yeah. And I love this whole thing. And I love racing with, you know, and in that race, I was really in the moment as I was, you know, everything you talk about, you know, I got, I finally experienced sort of, I'd always, ex I had experienced flow or being in the zone before, but not like this and not for mm. this extended period of time. Mm hmm. And uh, I ended up winning that race. It was a, probably the first time I'd ever won that race. And I just remember sprinting with joy and affection for everything and everyone around me. And also being able to, uh, in that sort of joyous moment, was the stroke of my pedaling stroke. Mm -hmm. And able to just sort of really pull up and push down and sort of the coordination with my arms as I rock the bike and, and, uh, just, I just focused on velocity and, um, and that was interesting. I mean, so that, that was great. Right. And there's a lot of takeaways there, but one of the other big things I learned is that if you do something right once you never forget it, you've basically mm -hmm. built a bunch of neural superhighways in your brain. And you short, you short circuit that whole build a little path, turn dirt road, <laughs> you know, secondary road, maybe a highway, then a super highway. It was just like, boom, super highway. I could repeat that mm. over and over again. So anyway, that's, that's the story. It sounded like this is a really big shift for you in terms of the mindset of shifting from, I'm going to say a very outcome driven mindset of like, okay, I got to win or I got to, I got to place or what's my number or whatever, uh, to, to suddenly it sounds like you were really just dropped in and suddenly the, the, the path itself kind of became the goal. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, prior to that experience, I was lining up with adversaries hmm. and it was, you know, um, to me it was a knife fight, you know, it was, hmm. it was me or them and everyone's here to beat me. Right. Mm -hmm. And I didn't care about the, the, it was like you said, results oriented. The re, it was about winning and that's it. And if mm -hmm. you didn't win, if you, if I thought I was not even going to make top three, I might even just pull out of a race. Mm, really? Wow. After that experience, I just mentioned the more euphoric experience. Um, I never pulled out of a race again. Yeah. I always just finished, you know, because I, enjoy the experience I mean, it, the ambiance the you know and i would call that earlier state a state of negativity yeah what do you think actually caused that shift for you because i feel like that shift is a pretty profound one it came to you in the you know through a bike race but i feel like that's a shift that's got it's got to ripple across your life sure i mean it, it it does and so it translates to everything else right so the absence from racing was kind of like it was a loss and then it came back. And as a result, you're able to fully appreciate it. And you hear this when people talk about being diagnosed with a terminal disease. 
and then they beat it. But the, the, now that they're back, they have a new appreciation for life and they live their life differently. And I would argue, I'm not sure, but it would be a great study to do now that they're living for the experience of life mm-hmm. and the pleasure of that with, with love and appreciation for everything that they're doing, my hypothesis would be that they are actually now more successful mm-hmm. in whatever they're choosing to do. So, you know, love is a big theme of, of, of what I teach now, you know, and I think um, I was lucky to sort of be exposed to methods and processes that I think are very useful for creating empathy and love and compassion, um, which, you know, thank God, otherwise I'd be reinventing my, my world at this moment, you know, but yeah. So yeah, I think it's appreciation. And so what I do is I try to appreciate everything every day, all the time. And that has by and large been a wonderful thing. However, when it comes to people, you can get in, you know, I, I'm a human being. And so when I appreciate people and love them mm-hmm. and they don't do the same for me, that mm-hmm. can cause uh, feelings of, um, I don't know, resentment that you, one might not experience if they didn't appreciate people in the first place. I so resonate with what you're saying. This this has been a major theme in my own journey of the last, you know, I don't know, 18 months, two years, where it's just like, oh shit. Like if I, it's interesting because you, you start to have to, I, I don't I don't want to project on you, but my experience has been that as I learn to, to realize where am I, where am I like giving from a place of expectation, right? Where, where is this sort of subtle behind the scenes expectation where I'm not really freely giving? I, you know, I've heard it called a covert contract where I'm doing something, but I'm not even maybe conscious of it, but I'm actually secretly hoping you'll love me back or you'll validate me or you'll tell me I'm smart or whatever. And then when that maybe doesn't happen, I get really pissy. Yep. That's exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess we're all just a bunch of human beings trying to human this thing out. I know. You know, (laughs) yeah. This 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 humaning thing. It's tough, man. Uh, It's really hard. It's really hard. You know, we yeah, we want to be loved. You know, and we go to you know great lengths to be loved. And everyone thinks that they're loved for different reasons, so they do different things, right? And then yep. And then you meet these people, and so they do one thing to kind of try to get love from you and you're doing something else to try to get love from them. And there's a disconnect and then there's the disappointment and the, and the, you know, the pissiness. <laughs> I, I know all too well. Yeah, <laughs> me too. You know, you and I, I think are both very relational people. I think we just see the world through a lens that's sort of founded in this desire to, to love and, and sort of through a, a fundamental worldview of interconnection. Yes. Right. It's like, I can't, I don't, I don't know what it is to look at the world and feel not part of it, if that makes sense. It's, it's like, I don't, I don't know. Does that make, does what I'm saying make sense to you? And I'm curious if that shows up for you. Yeah, it does. I, it makes so much sense to me. It, you know, I got thinking who wouldn't think that way. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's like, how could someone not feel a part of this world? It's either the natural world or the, you know, human made world. Um, we're all a part of it and, and we are all interconnected, whether we like it or not curious what's that genesis of seeing the world that way and do you think you had to go through a process to to shift to the place you're in now i think about that a lot i don't really know what resulted in how i you know my reality i don't know how i got to my reality 
But I think there there are some factors in my childhood that uh, I think were important. Uh, again, I don't know which ones were most important or the drivers, but I suspect the following were big drivers. One was that I was ostracized, outcast, and and bullied mm. uh, in yeah. middle school primarily. Um, that included obviously students bullying me or or ostracizing me, but it also included my teachers. Mm, wow. Yeah. So, and you know, one of them ended up being fired for uh, inappropriate behavior um, mm. shortly after I left. So that that uh, you know, as painful as that was, and it was painful. Yeah. I mean, there is nothing worse. And I was a sensitive person. You know, as a sensitive kid, I was not callous or, or, you know, full of vibrato or anything like that. So it, it really, really hurt me. But what it caused me to do was reflect and think and ask questions. Why? Why is this? And also, is there something wrong with me? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the insult of choice was faggot. So I was, mm. I was a fag and, you know, I was like, am I gay? You know? Mm. And I was like, wow. no, I'm not gay. But, you know, it made me think about it. And then I realized, you know what? These guys, none of them are gay and they're real assholes. <laughs> yeah. You know? And all of a sudden I was like, maybe gay people are really nice, you know? Yeah. And um, so it, it sort of started flipping things right in my mind where yeah. it caused me to be open, you know, to question authority, to question peer pressure, to question group think. Right. Yeah. And so I've always, from that point on, been an incredibly mm-hmm. independent thinker. I don't take anything for granted. If an expert tells me something, I go and talk to the people to find out if that's true or not. Um, that makes so much sense to me. Yeah. And, and the other thing is that it gave me empathy for people who are labeled or ostracized. So I actually identify, you know, like I'm an angry white guy and I'm angry at white people. You know, it's a kind of a weird thing, right? <laughs> yeah, um, sure. And uh, and I'm I'm sure I'm not alone, right? But no, you're um, not. And I identify actually with you know minorities and 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 people who are made fun of. You know, I'm like I've I have so much empathy for those people from what I went through, and I'm very very grateful for that. I mean, as I've gotten older, I've learned that everybody is recovering from childhood. Right. Yeah. So now I have empathy for everybody. We're all recovering from childhood. And now all those kids that were treating me like crap, they had terrible home life. I never knew that, Mm -hmm. you know, or my parents might have told me that I'm like, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. They sure seem happy in school. And um, now that I see how their lives turned out and I see how their parents kind of, you know, lived out their lives, it ain't pretty. And Mm -hmm. it, it started making more sense. So that's why now I'm really dedicated to the idea of breaking that cycle. Mm. I think if there's one thing we can do in this world to improve our society, uh, it would be to improve our parenting, Mm -hmm. to break the cycle of bad parenting, you know? So um, did you read the book, uh, Hillbilly Elegy? No, I've not read this yet. It's incredible. And um, it really gives insight into kind of, generations of poor parenting, you know, where someone has a kid at age 16. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a kid having a kid. And guess what? That 16 year old's mother is 32, Mm -hmm. right? So now you got three generations where everyone's having kids. It's age 16. And in this particular book, what was amazing is that the, his grandmother 
lived long enough because they're all dying from drugs at early ages, but she lived long enough to kind of mature to a point, Mm. I think in her early forties to basically go to him and say, you can do better than this. Mm. And that little planting that seed of a higher expectation seemed to have made a huge difference. And anyway, that, I think if we can, there were other elements, other brilliant things that happened, you know, like he went into the military and it, it taught him basic skills of, of, you know, hygiene and respect for himself and how to make a bed and all that. These are things you and I take for granted Mm. that and mainstream the people on the in, in our society, we take it for granted, Totally. but we will never be happy or safe and we will never feel fulfilled. I think until everyone in our society has those same sort of basic kind of respect for themselves and a, and a, and a healthy start to life. You know, so mm-hmm. that's something and that, you know, that deals with the new school I'm working on. And Yeah, which I, we're definitely going to talk about that. So I probably went way off track there, dude. I'm sorry, but uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. This is perfect. This is, this is so interesting to me. In our first conversation, one of the things I instantly resonated with about you and about your worldview, everything you just said was this idea that inside every single person, there is some unique contribution waiting to be made. Yeah. Right. There is something in there that every person has to offer and holy shit, what a loss if society is not benefiting or even getting a shot at benefiting from the best in all of us. And so I think there's something really not only profound, but beautiful about that idea of creating, I'm just going to call them vehicles for giving life to that, that, you know, self-expression in people. And so that's, that's really something I resonate with a lot in what you're saying. Um, and I think that's actually something very central to the show is every conversation in some way is exploring how do we help people be the best learners, creators, leaders they can be because they have something to contribute. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's fascinating what you're starting to explore, particularly with the, with the school, which I'd love you to talk about. Yeah. So this is a new school. It's in Marlboro, Massachusetts called the New England Innovation Academy. Probably the most unique aspect of the school is that we're actually making human-centered design, entrepreneurship, uh, and innovation the sort of centerpiece of the curriculum. Mm. And the, your traditional academic subjects like math and science, humanities, art, you know, uh, they all will be taught, you know, the same content, same, you know, you'll, you'll get the same sort of information, the students will, uh, but they'll get it in a way that they apply it to making something mm. in the afternoon. So in the morning, let's say they're all kind of, uh, in class and they're learning formulas or maybe they're learning about, you know, geography or they're learning about pol- politics in you know, 600 CE mm-hmm. uh, England in the afternoon, they'll take all of that stuff they learned in the morning and they'll be making a catapult, you know, <laughs> and they'll be calculating trajectory and, you know, dealing with air density and they'll be deep working with woods that are maybe from, you know, England from that time, you know, and they will maybe be doing role playing where they're in teams and each team is maybe a different castle around England, you know, and they're going to use mm-hmm. catapults to kind of, you know, establish superiority or whatever. But, mm. you know, I doubt after the, the idea being that if they do that kind of, you know, and this might be a, a week or two week or three week module, we're still kind of designing the curriculum. But the idea, though, is that after that kind of experiential making experience, I doubt very much they'll they'll ever forget how to calculate a trajectory. <laughs> they will forget, you know, 
what, um, you know, the king of England was was thinking at that time period. And that stuff, I don't even know. Yeah. But what's more interesting is that you, it seems like you're you're tapping into some really experiential ways of helping them actually learn how to learn. And the learning is so much more powerful and real when you're doing something with it. Absolutely. Like building a catapult, which, you know, what 13-year-old kid does not want to build a catapult? Let's be real. <laughs> I, mean, I want to build a catapult. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Me too. Um, yeah. So so that that's the school. Now, that there's a... but. The human-centered design part of that curriculum is the part that, you know, teaches the students that independent thinking mm-hmm. based on connecting with other people. You know, so human-centered design is really this process of before you start creating a solution for people, you actually go and talk to them first and find out what they might want. Oh, yeah. Crazy. Novel. Novel. <laughs> novel. Yeah. Shocking. Uh, but nobody does it, you know, so, yeah, which is, that's the, that's yeah. the real shocking part. And, oh, and, and worse, you got people who claim to do it and then they do it kind of, you know, without integrity, which is basically democracy. You know, democracy was this idea that we'd have people, these representatives who would understand what their constituents want, what the citizens want. And then they'd, they'd all get together and they'd design things for us like policy and experiences, mm-hmm. right? And services. Mm-hmm. And what's happened? They don't do it for us. They're doing it for themselves, you know? So that's the integrity part. And so human-centered design can can kind of uh, suffer from the same, same fate. But the big thing here is that we want our students to have this process that is automatic. Mm. If there's a problem or something they don't know or understand, they have this automatic reflex to go out, talk to people, understand their needs, understand their emotions, feel empathy for those people, and then form an opinion. And if that's a habit, right? And let's say every kid in our country had that as a habit. I think mm-hmm. that would fundamentally change our, our society here. Yeah, totally. I, I think you, when we spoke last time, you were talking about this idea of wanting you know, whether it's with this school or with the work you've done at MIT with the IDM program, this idea of infusing all the citizens and future leaders of our country with this worldview, for lack of a better term. Yep, exactly. What is it that changes when someone starts looking through this lens? First of all, they they start connecting with people. Mm. They have conversations. I mean, I think all the benefits I just mentioned happen. Mm-hmm. But some of the things I haven't mentioned are that th- they start, I think, if you're practicing human-centered design, you start to realize that going out and talking to the people and talking with people and connecting with them is um, a very pleasurable thing to do. Oh, it's so fun. Yeah. And you're doing it with the idea that you are going to try to help them. Mm-hmm. And helping people is a very, it feels really good, you know? Yeah. And by helping them, you're going to make money. You're going to profit because your product is going to be more desirable because it's going to meet their needs better, right? Mm-hmm. And you can sell it for either more money or you'll sell more of them. So your volume and profit will increase and you'll have a better business. Mm-hmm. So it's a sort of me for you gift, you know? Yeah, for sure. I was out for a walk this morning and thinking about what did I, where did I want to go in this conversation? One of the things that just popped into my head after our last conversation was this idea of, of putting your joy in service to others. And that it's, that's like the, the ultimate win-win as far as I can figure it out. And that's, that's what I'm hearing and what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. You know, some of the best products are designed by people who love 
you know, they love that product. They love that genre or that category or they're, they're lead users of the very product themselves. Sure. And that's also, you know, like something I talk about a lot. And I think my students really kind of think I'm a flake, but uh, I'm talking, I, I will sometimes go into this one little talk really about how love creates great designers, creates great product, right? And I think you call it the utility of love. Yeah. And, you know, so if you grab a doorknob and you twist that doorknob and it just feels solid and makes a nice sound and the door closes nicely, you know, love and appreciation, right? You, you got to appreciate that, that that's a really well done doorknob. You know, mm-hmm. sounds mundane, right? I mean, that's why I picked doorknob because it's, you know, it's like, how can you yeah. be delighted with a doorknob? Well, guess what? You can be. And there's doorknobs <laughs> that suck, by the way, you know, and they're hard to use or they're loose or, or you know, you got to pull on them, but the door needs to be pushed open or whatever, you know, so stupid things like this, you know, and I think great designers are always appreciating and loving things around them. Mm. They see things and then they, they build a library in their mind of beautiful things. So Mm. it's a, what's great about it is that, you know, the, that process of building a library of beauty in your mind is very positive and very fulfilling. Mm -hmm. And then it ends up being really useful when you're sketching something and you're pulling from all these different beautiful experiences that you've, chosen to remember mm-hmm. and catalog. Cause I think a lot of people actually choose in life to catalog negativity mm-hmm. and you see them, you can feel it from them when you're near them. And it's a shame, you know, but they've chosen to remember. And that's a fear based approach, right? Mm-hmm. And the opposite is a love based approach or an opportunity based approach to life. Mm-hmm. And it's just so surprised, you know, love is, so it ends up, you know, that it's, that fear is really at the heart of so many of our problems, maybe all of them. Fear in its more extreme forms manifests as, as violence and hatred, right? Hatred doesn't just sort of, you're not, you just don't hate first fear, then you hate, Yes, right? You're taught to hate. We really need to also look at fear. And that's another reason love is such an important thing is that love is this beautiful thing that displaces fear. Fear is darkness. Love is light. And it kind of comes in and it illuminates all these dark areas. And all of a sudden that fear goes away. And then when the fear has gone, guess what you can do better? You can love. Mm -hmm. And now you're in a positive reinforcing loop. Yeah. As opposed to a negative reinforcing loop, which is where the fear gets you. But anyway, sure. that's a little bit off base from this idea of cataloging beauty. But um, that's something that I have always done. And I've been appreciative of that. And that beauty comes not only in man-made items, or but also in nature. I mean, nature is a huge part of my life. and But also in humans. When I see people doing beautiful things, that will bring me mm. to tears. And it could just be some kindness I see randomly. Or mm-hmm. it could be someone, um, you know, playing some music on a guitar that's just incredibly pure and authentic, you know? So that's, that's what I live for, man. That it's those things. One of the things that I really dig about what you just said was this idea of cataloging beauty. And as someone who's come to the visual art side of life, the the arts and creativity side of life much later, it was not really a part of my world growing up. 
um, don't really, it just wasn't there. Um, and, and not through anybody's fault. It just was missing. And so that, it, that's been a bit of a, a novel concept for me. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I'm curious about thinking about what you're talking about with cataloging beauty. And one of the things I, I love about design is it's much more a way of seeing than anything else. It's a way of looking at the world and approaching the world, interacting with the world rather than any specific skill set like drawing or um, CAD design or something like that. I think a lot of people, particularly if they have a background like, like me, where they were not very engaged with, just to say, the visual side of life and, and visual expression, how do you help them believe that? How do you help them believe that they're actually a designer too? Even if they're like, but I can't draw, Matt, or I can't, you know, yeah. fill in the blank. Well, this is actually something I grapple with myself. Um, you know, my father was extraordinary painter and I, I watched, I would watch his process. Um, his process consisted of just like you said, seeing things, you know, we would, uh, we had a old 53 Willie's Jeep, didn't go over 35 miles an hour. And we lived on a mountain in New Hampshire. So we drive, you know, seemed like hours from town to home and <laughs> home to town is only three miles. But, uh, you know, the, the point though, is that we'd be driving and, and he, we'd be driving along and think, look at the color, look at the color of that roof, Matt, look at that you know, or look at the shadows on, or look at those leaves, look at that, look at the negative space, you know, coming through. And we, every, and, and he'd say, you know, every day is different. I drive this twice a day and every day I see something different and beautiful. Hmm. And that's sort of, I think where a lot of what you and I are talking about came from in me hmm. and he would practice painting. Right. So let's just think of an artist this way. I, I believe an artist, we, we are all artists. Okay. Uh, in, in this first foot phase of being an artist. And that first phase is to see and feel. We all do that. And then what we do, uh, this is what really separates, I guess, real artists from us is that we practice something, some medium, hmm. whether it's painting, sculpture, violin, oboe, timpani, drums, guitar, voice, right? Mm. Dance. We practice some, some medium so that the feelings that we have, the things that we see that are so profound and delicate that we can actually share that with other people because we can't show them what we saw. Or maybe what we saw is an amalgamation of all kinds of shit, right? But how can we get that same sort of cathartic feeling or whatever to, uh, well, I'm going to play guitar for you Hmm. or I'm going to make a film Hmm. or I'm going to do a painting. And so that part, so there's the input, the feeling, and then there's the output, the expression Hmm. and the expression part is where we associate this, the talent of artists. And to me, it's the first part. Can you feel, Mm. do you have the courage to feel deeply? Do you have the courage to love deeply, to be hurt deeply, to feel things, to feel joy completely? If you can do that and it has meaning to you and you want to share that with others, you will fucking figure out how to express it. You will spend hours and hours and hours with that guitar, mm. hours and hours. You will write, you will paint, you will, whatever it takes, you will do it until you can get it out. 
Mm. And that's what makes the artist. But that expression part is a skill. It's a craft. The passion part is the input. That's how I see it. I just made that all up now. So I could be wrong. That was fucking amazing. I'm moved by what you just said. I, I wish I had an extra mic that I could drop for you right now. <laughs> because that was like, I, I mean, I'm so glad this is being recorded. Holy shit, Matt. <laughs> As you were saying that, it literally one of the things that went through my mind was, A, he's completely right. But B, that actually is when I think about it that way, like that the, there's this two part process, right? And, and it, we're all artists and we just, some of us just choose different or resonate with different mediums that we may not necessarily societally may not be considered quote unquote art mm-hmm. or creative, for example. But because like, when, when I heard you talking about this, I was like, oh, well, that's, that's certainly how I feel about dance. I love dance. It's how I feel about writing. I love writing. Uh, talking about music, but then what I also felt was like, oh, that's also actually how I feel about personally. That's how I feel about d- building organizations and, and companies. That's like that's my inspiration for building a company is what you just described. I was like, oh shit, that's awesome. Like that's so cool because I've had that moment of like I see something and I want to give that to you. And the craft I'm practicing is how do you build a new thing in the world, right? And in a sense, we're all frustrated artists. You know, mm-hmm. I think everyone has feelings and ideas and none of us, no one, no one, not even the greats, you know, are able to express completely what, what they have in their mind. Um, but some do it much better than others, you know? Sure. You know, there's a, there's a bit of language that I got from an earlier guest on this show, uh, Derek Mills, and we'll link to this, we'll link to all the stuff in the show notes for the listener, but he, uh, he runs this company called glow that I really, really respect. And they are yoga and meditation app. They're one of the, they're actually my favorite one, by the way, if you're looking for like, I want to do great yoga from home, check them out, glo.com. I'm not getting paid for this. I just love them. <laughs> I so respect the the way they've built the company and transformed the company. And, and there's a bit of language he gave me that helped resolve um, tension in my mind that I think is behind the scenes for a lot of people, which is if you're somebody who's interested in the conversation we're having, I assert that a big part of what moves you is the possibility, Mm -hmm. the potentialities of things. One of the downsides of that, or the things that can be a downside, is that by definition, you cannot reach your potential. Because the moment you think you did, there's more. And that, on some level, that's deeply frustrating. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And that really used to piss me off. I was like, fuck. (laughs) How am I, like, shit, I'm just, like, I love this game. But at the same time, like, talk about spiritual frustration. But the the language he gave me that helped was this idea that, yeah, you'll never reach it, but you can always live into it more fully. Mm -hmm. You can always, like, take new ground and and take new ground in in, in embodying and expressing it. And for some reason, that seemed to, like, bridge the gap there. So I just wanted to offer that up. Yeah, I love that. So true. Good stuff. One of the things that occurs to me is that this way of, I'm just going to say this way of being is widely applicable, right? You can apply this to anything. And I guess my question is if we, if I'm going to use design as, as the shorthand label for that way of being and thinking and showing up, I imagine that you have had a conversation many, many times where you're sitting with somebody and they don't know where to, where to apply that skill set or in which ways to apply that skill set. How do you guide people to discover where to apply that skill set? You know, choosing what to work on, mm-hmm. choosing which ideas to pursue, and where do you find those vehicles for the expression? I'm curious, how do you, how do you guide people there? With integrated design and management at, at MIT, it's not, um, you know, we're not, we're, the, their expression will be business or 
you know, starting a company, creating an organization, creating a product, you know, something like that. So, or what we like to say is we're teaching them to be compose, composer conductors. What's that mean? Well, most of us are brought up thinking that we're going to be virtuoso, you know, soloists, right? Okay. You're, so I'm, I'm going to be the best painter ever or the best yeah. programmer or whatever. Right. Best programmer. And, they, and you focus on that. Are you going to be the best mechanical engineer, right? Are you going to be whatever it may be? That's biologist. Mm-hmm. And that's wonderful. And that's great. And that, that can be incredibly gratifying. The people in IDM really come to learn how to put together an orchestra of people like that mm. and to give them a melody to play together and to kind of manage and curate that melody as they are working mm. together to, to, to know when the violin should be louder and the tipping should be quieter to know when the, you know, the, it's a piano concerto and the piano is going to, you know, kind of steal the show for a couple of minutes. You know, they'll, they'll not in a business that's all happening. You've got all these different soloists that are playing together. Right. And they're reading off each other too. And that's another Mm -hmm. thing that, you know, when I'm designing or developing products, I am working with a team of people and they're the, the, you know, the seasoned ones, we know kind of automatically, it's like a jazz band. You know, mm-hmm. you're riffing off of each other. You're sensing th- things. Mm-hmm. You all of a sudden someone makes a mistake, and you're like, "Damn, that sounds good." And now you weave that into your thing, and their mistake becomes, you know, a feature, right, of the piece. And so, mm-hmm. product and businesses and anything that we're working on are all like that, you know. And so, we're trying to create people who know how to orchestrate or manage those types of of ensembles, so to speak. Now, that said, we get lots of people that come to, I get lots of students that come to me and say, you know, Matt, I don't know what, you know, what to focus on here or this or that. And so um, I usually start with a simple question, you know, which is where do you see yourself in 20 years? Mm. And it's surprising how few people can answer that question. Mm. And it's also surprising how many people find that an uncomfortable question. Hmm. Well, I don't know, you know, I'll, I'll be, uh, you know, I'll be, they'll give me some really vague kind of vision for themselves. And for me, it's, I've always been the opposite. I've always had a very specific vision. The vision would change and evolve, but I always had a specific vision, you know? So, mm. so, but by getting sort of 10,000 feet up and looking down, let's look at your life from 10,000 feet. Mm-hmm. What, what will fulfill you? Mm-hmm. And then let's reverse engineer out of that 20 years out. Let's, let's just back out of that all the things that will have to happen between now and then mm-hmm. or the things that can happen. I mean, who can predict mm-hmm. what has to happen? But, you know, at least let's map out something. And usually that will kind of either illuminate them that, you know, they're completely off track at the moment or <laughs> that a lot of the stuff they're doing is, is great. and They didn't realize it. And that's usually the case. The idea of fulfillment is one of the most powerful ideas that I know. And it, it's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. When you think it, when you use that word, or, or let me ask you this a different way. Let's say you're sitting with one of these, these folks, right? And they say, and you ask them, you know, what's your life? What do you want your life to look like in 20 years? And not just your job, not just your work, but like your life. What is it you think people get fulfilled by? 
or, or where do you think people find fulfillment? Are there patterns? That's a really hard question to answer. I don't think I, I don't think I can answer it, Andrew, because, you know, I would have, I would have to have with the amount of students that I work with, I would need to go forward 20 years with all of them and then have an intimate mm. glimpse into their life to see if they're fulfilled and if they're not, what, how that relates to other des- lives that were, de- that people had designed for themselves. Mm. <clears throat> I can tell you that from my kind of, um, from an anecdotal perspective, from the observations of my life, um, from the experiences uh, that I personally have had, uh, fulfillment really comes from the things we've talked about, uh, loving other people, uh, loving the earth, um, uh, helping other people. Uh, but a huge part of it is balance. Mm. And that's a balance between sort of all the dimensions that we exist in. And so for me, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I think I'm more practical than most. So the answer, you know, what, what I'm about to describe, you're going to be like, yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's not very, um, I don't know, cosmic, but you know, we're obviously physical things. We're physical creatures. We have these bodies, right? There are these amazing mechanisms. Well, those things need to be taken care of mm-hmm. and taking care of them being fit, uh, and taking care of our bodies and the time that it, that it takes to do that, that's one part of the balance. Another is our, our kind of mental state our, and, and intellect. And that needs to be practiced and, and exercised as well. And then there's the spiritual side, you know, which uh, for me is actually just connecting with nature and the universe, you know. In the, and what's interesting is all of these things kind of feed each other. So if I'm mm-hmm. on my bike exercising, uh, that's good for my body, but it's also allowing me to sort of move through time and space, you know, and mm-hmm. feel and smell and sense and hear. And, um, you know, like that trip with my dad in the truck up the, up the mountain, every bike ride is like that, you know? And so I'm, I'm working on my spirit and I'm working and then I'm thinking about things. So intellectually, but you know, my intellect is not, it's at it's 10%. Now, when I go to work at MIT or, you know, working at NIA, uh, then my brain is 110% and, um, my body is, you know, festering and, uh, <laughs> and, and my spirit is getting a little depressed because it's mired down in all this minutia. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, I need time for my spirit. And what I do for that is I play guitar, which is off to my left, or I play piano. And, uh, you know, for my own personal consumption, it's, it's not about the result. It's about the experience. And that allows me to kind of, it's like a sort of assisted meditation, you know, and, Mm -hmm. but all of these things feed each other. And I think you can do more of them at a higher level if you are in balance Mm. and if you're not in balance, you can only get to a certain height with any of them. In my opinion, I think you're really onto something there. One of the insights I had a few months ago, I was going through a really hard time at, at the time. And I had this realization that I had a, or have long had, I think I'm over it now, but I definitely growing up had this conditioning, a toxic relationship with my work. And what I mean by that is, 
I, and I was conditioned in such a way similar to you where I often struggled with a sense of inadequacy or feeling unimportant or not belonging and, and not knowing my place in the world, all those, all of those difficult emotions. And I had con- been conditioned to look to my work to fill all those needs. Mm. Right. And it's almost like I was, I was trained by my life growing up that your work was the one sort of the one source to rule them all, to, to fill that bucket, so to speak. And what I realized in this flash of insight was like, oh, wow, I've asked for it to do so much more than it can. And ironically, like when I would feel those things, and I'm reflecting on basically my entire 20s, I would go harder. I'd go harder at the work, expecting it to, to you know, oh, I just got to go harder. I'll break through. I'll find the next thing, whatever. And it never really worked, or it only worked for a very, very short period of time. And what I realized was that by going harder on it and, and asking it, it actually makes the problem worse because the solution is not found there. The, the solution is in, in what you're pointing out is, is balance. It's like, oh, wow, a internal sense of lack is not going to be addressed sufficiently by anything external. And so I just, I don't know, I just wanted to share that. I don't actually know where yeah. I'm going with this, but it just seemed kind of, that's what I, that's what came up for me as I was listening to you. Well, um, yeah, I love what you said. And, you know, I think it made me think of it or frame it this way. If you're balanced, you're inspired. Mm. And when you're inspired, you can do really good work, right? Yeah. When you're out of balance, or if you're doing work in a state of stress, you're, it's hard to be inspired. It's hard to, to think about how cool this will be. Mm-hmm. You're not thinking about that. Instead of thinking about how cool this is going to be when we're done, and that's that's how when you're when you're creating great shit, that's what you're thinking. This is going to be so cool, right? Yep. And that brings all kinds of energy and solutions you never would have had without that. The uh, you know, and the opposite, and the other opposite end of the spectrum is, oh my god, if I don't get this right, we're going to fail. Mm. Oh my god, we are. Oh, you know, let's. How are we going to make this work? You know nothing good comes from that. Well, you know, you might survive, but you know, nothing, nothing that. Yeah. That is not the place of highest inspiration. Yeah, no, no. So, you know, you got to stay away from that balance. Is it for me? You know, it's, it's taken a lot of discipline. I mean, I, you know, I, I've always been a terrible student and mm. it, um, it, you know, I've been very passionate about this balance my whole life. And that's why, you know, at a certain point, I'm like, no, nope, I'm done studying. This is just not going to work <laughs> for me. I need to go outside and climb a tree. And uh, and so I would. And my mom would be like, you know, you're going to fail. And yes, I would fail. Um, but uh, I learned a lot in that tree. And I think we all learn a lot in trees. You know, and sometimes I have students. They're just like, you know, uh, one student recounted the other day uh, in front of me. He was reflecting on his time. At, at IDM with me. And he said, you remember that time I came to you and I had no internship or job for the summer. And, uh, and I was really kind of de- down about it. And, and I was thinking that maybe I should just sort of take time to reflect. And do you remember what you said? And I was like, no. And he's like, you told me that's a great idea, but to do it completely, like go lay in the grass face down mm. and look at every blade of grass you know, and smell it. And I was like, Hmm, that's, that's probably pretty good advice. I would have given that advice, (laughs) Uh, you know, and I do that now and then, you know, um, what I'm thinking of right now was this, something you said a few minutes ago, I think it, 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 it sort of got, it almost like got overlooked in, in the, in the amazing 
thing you this amazing download you just dropped on me uh, about like the, you know what it is to be an artist right and we talked about the input of the passion and the feeling and then the output of the the expression through some medium but there's something you said in there that i think actually might be a bigger deal for a lot of people than at least i've appreciated which is the feeling i think a lot of people have shut down the feeling they have shut down emotion they have shut off emotion and there's probably a lot of reasons for that and from all sorts of different things, whether it's their their own past, pain they've experienced, whatever. And I'm curious why you think that might be or what, if you've seen people having to learn to turn that back on, how they've gone about it. And for some reason, this is really reminding me of the distinction that I've heard, I think we've talked about before about empathy and compassion. And I'm curious, what, how does this all bubble around for you? Well, I, so I, you know, I have a lot of students that are just very sensitive. Um, they come in and they're, they feel they get hurt very easily. Um, and what I tell those students is that, you know, look, what you're feeling is the result of basically a little superpower that you have. You know, you have a little, a little like, uh, you know, a spidey sense, right? And you are seeing, feeling, perceiving things that, the other person doesn't intend for you to feel or know Mm. in a way you're kind of reading into their mind and you're violating their privacy. Hmm. And that in a way is a great skill or, or, or superpower to have, but it's a double-edged sword. You have to be careful with it. You have to be responsible and you have to understand that some of the things you're feeling don't, have anything to do with you, you know? So, but that sensitivity, uh, I do want, I like framing that as a superpower, number one, cause it is super important, but the, the other burden is that you get hurt. You get hurt from that. Mm. Um, and, uh, people who have that are super sensitive and continue to be sensitive, they deserve a lot of they need to be recognized as people who are courageous. Mm. And um, because, uh, you know, I have lived my whole life that way. I've chosen not to turn that off. Mm. And as I've gotten older, I will say that I have become uh, battle-worn. Mm. I am not like I was when I was 13 or 14, super sensitive and not battle-worn, right? Back then, it was incredibly painful. Now it's less painful, but now I feel like I'm not sensing enough or I'm not feeling enough. Mm -hmm. So I have a different worry now. (laughs) And so I'm trying to sensitize myself, uh, get back to, to that. Um, but yeah, you know, and I think all of this, so this, this is also can be dangerous because if you are very, very sensitive and you feel these emotions and you don't know how to process them or acknowledge that this has nothing to do with me. Mm. You can start feeling fear or animosity towards other people, mm. which can now set you up for a lot of negative, negative interactions. And you become basically an oversensitive kind of, um, you know, aggravating person to be around, you know. And, and so that's the other thing you got to be very careful. You know, basically, if you can't recover from the trauma of what you sense, you better stop sensing so much. 
you know, or reducing the amount of people you expose yourself to. So, you know, I'm, I have to do that. I have to consciously limit the amount of people that I, uh, spend time with because it's, it can be too much of a burden for me, mm-hmm. but I'm exposed to a ton of people mm-hmm. in my role at MIT. Right. Sure. You know, so this brings me to the topic, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I'm stepping down from my, mm-hmm. from my role as director of IDM. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this is one of the reasons. Yeah. The, the energy drain. The energy drain, the amount of people that I love, that I watch and cannot, I can't give as much as I want to so many people. Sure. Uh, so there's this quality issue that I can't really, I can't really do. The other thing is that it's now turned into, you know, in the first three years, it was this euphoric experience of, of creating this like really different you know, graduate program at MIT of all places, you know, and, and then it started to become more operational. Mm. And I learned something important about myself that, you know, managing and, and dealing with all kinds of minutia and little problems day in and day out. And, uh, that's just not my, it's not my cup of tea. It's not what interests me. It's not what causes my energy to go up. It actually causes my energy to go down. And, uh, and then Nia kind of hit the scene, New England Innovation Academy. And that was like, my God, here's my next creation. And I need to spend time with that. So the time was right. I love it. I love it. You gotta, when you feel it, you gotta, you gotta ride that wave. Yeah. And, but most don't, Uh, you know, I, I think it's important to note that some people will stick with the, you know, safe, the safe job. The safe job for me would be with MIT. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's not for, for me. I, I have the, I know that that's not, I have the discipline to take action on what my kind of heart is telling me. I really, I really, really resonate with what you're saying. Um, it's in, it, with, with everything you just said, because I think I, I almost went the opposite way where I think I was much more shut down and like sensitivity wise and have been learning to open up back up all those things. I, I think I was actually a very sensitive kid who learned to shut it down and then have had to undo that as an adult. And it, it's been difficult in a different way. But the thing that it really resonated with me or one of the things you were really saying there was like, I remember a very difficult period last year where I was just like, wow, I feel like I'm being sucked into black holes by people because I, I would feel I would feel so much, but I didn't realize it wasn't mine. Mm-hmm. It, like what I was feeling was was not mine. I was just picking up on their state, even when they weren't saying things. I could just tell and starting to learn. Like I didn't, I don't think I had good boundaries. Didn't know what good boundaries were. Certainly didn't know what like an energetic boundary was. And I had to learn to be like, oh wow, there's okay. How to modulate that is a it's a whole thing. Totally. <laughs> I love that you were aware of that and it took action to 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 go with it. You mentioned earlier, Andrew, something that I think is really important, and that is the idea of external validation. Yeah, that's something that I've always struggled with as well. Uh, the need for that. And I think that comes from being bullied, you know, where mm-hmm. it's like, oh, my God, does anyone like me? Right. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, you know, letting go of the need for external validation, I think, is really important. But, you know, this whole idea of human centered design thing now is sort of in contrast to that, because, you know, if you're relating to me or you're in my life, I want to make sure you're happy. So maybe I should understand your needs. And also, is there anything I can do better? You can drive yourself crazy with that stuff. You know what I mean? Yes, you can. So you got to be really careful about all of this. 
there's a fine line between being generous and being codependent. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's what I've learned in my own life. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I've learned this the hard way. So, uh, yeah, for anyone who resonates with that, I invite you to go look that up. <laughs> um, there's this pressure, at least that I feel, at the front of things to see how it's all going to work out, right? Like before you even start to see like, okay, how does this piece connect to that piece? And how does this all roll up to some like, ooh, really big, cool, important thing that's like significant and meaningful and mm-hmm. whatever. And to see all that before you even do it, which does, that's not how it works, <laughs> right? Like you can't. And, mm-hmm. and I, I'm noticing this pattern in myself and actually with a few other people that I'm close with. And I'm like, okay, I know this doesn't work, but what do we do about this? Because I see it all, all over the place. I'm curious... What do we do about that? Yeah, you relax. <laughs> All right, good. And, and it's hard to do. Um, so, you know, I uh, back to MIT. It's a whole place full of people that want that sheet music all written out, every rest, every all the phrasing, every note, right? Mm-hmm. They want that plan. You know, the irony is that they will they will write that sheet music, right? It'll take them months. They'll have that whole thing planned out. And then, okay, let's start. And everybody starts playing the music and about three bars into it, everyone's improvising because nothing (laughs) is how they predicted it to be, right? Yeah. So I think one way to think about that is that when your predictive ability is 100% correct 100% of the time, okay, then Mm -hmm. make those plans. But until then, you should practice improvising. Mm. That should be what you think about is more about, okay, what do I need to improvise? What are all the factors? What are the ingredients I'm going to have around me, you know, for this thing I'm doing? And can I pull and push and, you know, include or whatever, stop, you know, all these things at any given moment. So really flexibility strategy should really be about, building in lots and lots of flexibility uh, so that all the good stuff can unfold without being truncated because of some rigid plan. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, but you know, like a lot of the plans that people make, uh, they make them without fully understanding all the opportunity that's going to come to them through the process. Mm. And as a result, when they're so focused on the plan, they, uh, the opportunity can't be seen. It's outside mm-hmm. of their field of vision. But those that can improvise, when they see an opportunity, they're like, what was that? Oh, wow. Okay. That's an opportunity. Let's change our planning and, and fold that into what we're doing. Right. Mm-hmm. Now there's a balance here as usual. Right. So I like strategies with a structure, like think of it as a chord progression, going back to music, you got a chord progression, you're going to build off of that. Right. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to write every single note out. It sounds like you need sort of some directionality and some basic flexible structure, like a, a foundation you can improvise from, like let yourself go and, and explore, but in some broad direction you find interesting and meaningful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. But, you know, generally relax. Yeah. Just go with the flow. You can't go wrong unless you're, unless you're blinded by negativity. If you are just, if you just jump in to the flow of whatever you want to, to do, and you just pull from your library of beauty, I guarantee you, at the end of that flow, you will have something that was more beautiful than what you started with. Yeah, going back to the bike race and right being in it like for the joy of the ride. Yeah, 
it's like cool find find a ride you like and then point it in a direction you like and enjoy the damn ride exactly right what just popped in my head though as well was like okay well what's you know emotions drive everything we do on some level and i was like well what's in the background of this question i'm asking it's like it's really a tension between you could say love and fear but it's really about like okay that trying that predictive ability you're pointing at it's really a desire for control that's right and it's like okay well what's 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 in the what's going on there and and can i move through whatever is with that to a place of trusting. I think that's kind of what I'm seeing is, is this dichotomy between trust and control and it's trying to shift the balance a little bit. Yeah. You know, trusting that improvising will yield a beautiful result. That's the trust part. Mm. Another way to think about it is, uh, you know, we love certainty, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are fearful of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And if we can learn to become comfortable with uncertainty, you are happier and you actually produce more beautiful things. And that's what I think artists and designers do very well uh, is that they're comfortable with that process of, you know, uncertainty that comes with trying to figure out a way to express complex emotions or ideas that are in you. Right. How do you do that? Well, it's trial and error, right? It's iterative. Um, it's all these things that, you know, every, all the, the business world is now recognizing as fabulous processes for uh, making complicated business decisions, right? Business is uncertain. So, you know, these intuitive methods of creating really lend themselves to any complex, murky problem. Yep. But the, the key to it is to go with the flow. It's just to relax, you know? I love it. So I want to pivot now and we'll start to close out the conversation with a couple uh, rapid fire questions. They're short questions, but your answers could be as long as they're, as you feel interesting and, and enjoy. Do I get a prize? Uh, yes. The enjoyment of the ride. Okay. <laughs> I'll take it. So the first one is I know that, um, you know, the idea of paying it forward is important to you. And I'm curious who is there a, a mentor or somebody who really made a difference for you? I'm just curious, like who is that person and what, what did you think, what did they teach you? God, man, tons, tons of people. Yeah. You know, like it, when you, so remember I catalog beauty. Mm-hmm. Everybody's my mentor. You know, I had lunch in a diner yesterday and the owner of the diner was there that I got a little mentoring from him, you know, mm. I, uh, I mean, they, they come from every, everywhere. There have been a few pivotal mentors. That's probably what you're getting at. Right. Obviously my dad was a huge mentor. My mom, huge mentor, you know, entrepreneurial, super creative, vivacious, right. Just super Mm. inspired. Um, I, I really, uh, model a lot of my life after her. And so my dad was in, 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 you know, an introvert and reflective and philosophical. That's me. My mom is an extrovert you know, super entrepreneurial and a pistol, right? There's a little of that in me yep. too, right? And then, you know, when I got out of college, I got this job um, uh, in a furniture store. I was, I couldn't get a job as a designer because uh, I don't know why. I just didn't have a great portfolio. I don't think my teachers like me very much. Uh, so I didn't get any good <laughs> recommendations. But I, so I was, I was, this is a great story. Um, I hope it's not too long, but I'm living with my, my girlfriend and her mom just outside Boston. And I was like, I got to get out of this house. We, Karen, I got to get out of this house. We cannot live with our mother mm-hmm. any, any much longer. So I was like, I'll do anything. So I went and I applied for a truck driving job 
at a art supply company. I figured I'd get a discount on art supplies. So that would be cool. Mm. I go up there with my portfolio. The guy sits me down and, you know, I'm in this like cubicle farm and he's like, all right, do you have any felonies? And I'm like, no. He's like, how about any uh, moving violations or, you know, outstanding warrants for your arrest? And I'm like, what? No, no, no. And he's like, all right, well, I think you got the job. I'm like, thank God, this is awesome. <laughs> and he's like, what's that you got there? And I said, oh, this is my portfolio. He's like, what's a portfolio? So I start showing him all these products and I I'd gotten a patent by then and stuff. And he's like, all right, you're not, you're not getting this job. I was like, what are you, you're killing me. I got to get out of the house, you know? And, <laughs> and he's like, wait right here. And he, so he, he left and he, he came back with the VP of marketing um, mm-hmm. and uh, Neil Yanofsky. And Neil uh, basically whisked me off to his office, hired me as a furniture salesperson. I made peanuts, but Neil was an HBS grad. He taught at Radcliffe and mm. he agreed to teach me business uh, after work now and then. Hmm. And, and he did. And he taught me, you know, cash flow projections and, you know, how to manage inventory and all, you know, just all kinds of stuff. And so he was, and he was uh, also just full of energy and had a beautiful way of, of, um, of explaining things that was entertaining and inspiring. Right. So that was, he was a really big mentor. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question and then we'll close out. Okay. Last one is just what is a quote or a saying that's important to you? And what about it speaks to you? Well, boy, let's see. I have a few here that I love. And, um, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, seems to hit a lot of things on the nose for me. Mm. And so these come from him. Um, So I think all of these, Andrew, relate directly to our conversation today. So I'll just read you. I'm going to read you like four or five, okay? Beautiful, please. Okay. Every man has his own courage and is betrayed because he seeks in himself the courage of other persons. And that's what you and I are talking about where we need external validation. Well, Mm, Ralph was also sensitive to that, which is very interesting, right? Um, here's another one. Nothing great was ever achieved without enthusiasm. And that to me is, you know, about appreciation and love, right? Appreciating and loving things is what causes us to be enthusiastic. And that's what makes us create great things. Um, here's another great one from him. You cannot do a kindness too soon for you never know how soon it will be too late. And, uh, you know, I love that. Um, you know, we think, you know, to me, that's basically like, wow, you know, why am I not being kind? Well, you know, I could get hurt. But you know what mm-hmm. hurts more? To have not been kind, to regret having not been kind when you could have been. Mm-hmm. You know, so for me, that's a really important thing is to live your life completely, to live it fully, to be tired and beat up at the end of it to look back and have to, to, you know, the one regret I fear the most is to not have lived my life uh, to its fullest, you know, in every dimension. Mm, yeah. Right there. Um, yep. Uh, here's one that relates to improvisation versus planning. Don't be too timid and squeamish about your actions. All life is an experiment, right? So jump in there, relax. 
And then this is probably my, my favorite. Once you make a decision, the universe conspires to make it happen. So that's oh, really, man. I'm yeah. laughing because I have that on a painting across the room right now. <laughs> I have a painting someone sent me um, done by Huma Cloud. Uh, it goes by Gaping Void. That is exactly that. Uh, and I will send you a photo of it after this, and we'll put it in the show notes. So I, I think that's such a beautiful, a beautiful one to end on with there. That's awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not alone. That guy wasn't, you know, he wasn't an idiot. So nah, he did a thing or two. <laughs> he did. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, Matt, thank you so much for spending the time with me today. What a, what a, I don't even know the right word, but I was going to say what a privilege, what a pleasure this conversation has been. We've explored so much territory. So just thank you for having this exploration with me. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and I guess just in closing out, what would you, what would you like to leave the listener with? Well, I guess it would be, you know, to do your best to love yourself and love others. And of course, loving yourself allows you to love others more fully and to not be scared of the potential hurt that can come with that. It's better, you know, I guess another quote, it's better to love and lost than to never have loved at all. And I think that, you know, that's true on more of a high quantity kind of uh, basis. So I guess that's the thing I I would, uh, and to love in many different ways, to love all things and to find beauty and appreciate that in your life. Um, I think that's how we really can live a joyful life. Mm. So I'll leave it at that. And well, um, said. Andrew, I also want to just express my uh, appreciation for the conversation with you. It was an absolute pleasure and a privilege. So thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and Matt, just if people want to reach out, follow your work, where would you have them go? Well, they can go to, um, I guess the best place would be uh, New England Innovation Academy website, and that is neiacademy.org. Uh, and uh, you can see all the great stuff we're doing there. Um, you can also visit MIT IDM website. Well, thanks so much again, and uh, have a great rest of your day, and I look forward to seeing how this all evolves. So keep great. it great. Thanks so much, Andrew. Have a good one. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, I'd be so grateful if you could do me a favor and take about 25 seconds to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps me reach way more listeners, and it also helps me bring you more great guests. As always, please feel free to reach out to me anytime at connect at makethingsthatmatter.com. And until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. See you out there.